Let's pray and then we're going to look at Psalms 11 this morning. Father, we are grateful to be gathered together. We thank you that we can sing to you and think about how you sent your son and he died in our place and he crushed our death. We will never see the second death, the eternal death, the eternal separation from you, Father. Constant, consistent judgment. We'll never see that because Jesus died for us. And Lord, we're reminded that he left the air of heaven to breathe the dust of air as we sang that today. To come onto this earth, to live a perfect sinless life, be our substitute, hang on the cross in our place and allow the Father to judge him on our behalf. So Lord, these are worth truths that should, we should remind our hearts of, Lord. So we thank you for that, Lord. We think of those who cannot be here, Lord. Pray for Jimmy and Jean, Lord, as they struggle here. And Jean, maybe at the end of her life, Lord, we pray for this family that you would just give them strength. Pray for others who are going through treatment. Some have had surgeries this week, Lord. Others are recovering from difficulties, Lord. We pray that this morning you would strengthen them. And I pray Psalms 11 would encourage them and all of us here. Pray for those who are traveling and coming back from spring break with children and family and friends. Give them safe journeys, Lord. School returns tomorrow, whether at home or here or in the public school system or wherever it may be. We pray that children be ready to go and Stand for the Lord Jesus Christ as they've had a week off to enjoy with family. Lord, bless this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. I was in Psalm 11 encouraging somebody the other day, and uh, I got super encouraged as I was walking through this psalm, and I thought, I think i got to preach this thing. Uh, sometimes you just... You know, as a pastor and a preacher, you know, working through, we're working through the book of Mark, of course. If you're here visiting with us, we're in the middle of Mark chapter 7 right now. But there's just times the Lord just lays a text on your heart. And it was interesting. It was a, it was a time of encouragement for a dear brother that I was sharing the Psalms 11 with. And, and the more I looked at it, the more I said, I want to preach this psalm. This is a beautiful psalm. And, and so perfect timing, uh, I, I believe, for the time of life we're in. And so... As we listen to Gary read it, you realize that this is a psalm of David trying to help us focus our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the whole aspect of, of the psalm is built upon um, when our foundation, the things we hold dear, are shaken. Uh, I was recently reading a biography, a short uh, snippets of some biographies, and one of them was uh, Philip Bliss. Do you, you know who Philip Bliss was? He was a composer, much like Andrew, a great composer who composed a lot of songs. And one of the men that he composed for and wrote for were, was D.L. Moody. And so in the middle of the 1800s, when D.L. Moody was on his crusades preaching, often Philip Bliss would lead worship with him or write worship music. Um, you may have remembered this story in December 29th, 1876, him and his wife were on uh, a train heading to a crusade to do music with D.L. Moody, and the train went across a trussle that collapsed. Do you remember this? I, mean, I don't know if you've ever read this. And I think there was 139 people or something like that on the train, 93 of them died. Somehow, Philip Bliss was thrown from the train and got out. 
but upon realizing that his wife was not with him, went back in. They never saw him again. And it's said that she was pinned and there he died. They found their corpses held together as he went back in. In his briefcase that they found recovering as they went through all the belongings of people, they found a list of songs, one of them which was called, I Will Sing of My Redeemer. How many of you older saints remember that song? What a beautiful song it was. And it was a song that was filled with looking forward. I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, O oh, sing of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt and made me free. What a lot of people don't know is that um, when uh, Horatio Spafford, you remember with him, he, he had sent his family, a wife and four daughters across the Atlantic over to England. He was going to come from America behind them and that boat sunk. Do you remember this story? And as uh, Horatio Spafford uh, crossed that, he wrote words that we now know the great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. But guess who he asked to write the music to it? Horatio Spafford, one month before he died with his wife, wrote the music to that. These are men that suffered great things. Um, and the list goes on. We could talk about missionaries and, and, and just everyday church members who go through suffering, who come against when their foundation of life is absolutely shaken. Clearly, Philip Bliss had to make a decision. He was out. He was okay. He was, he was alive. What was he going to do? In a moment's notice, with his foundation shaken, he made a decision to go and try to rescue his wife. Well, here in Psalms 11, it contains a faithful response, and now think about this, to fearful and unwise counsel. To fearful and unwise counsel. It seems, this is a psalm of David, King David is in danger from those who are bending the bow at him. They have pulled the bow back, they're ready to fire. And either friends or maybe possibly enemies are advising him to flee to the mountains. Run, David, run. But David, when, I, when we study this psalm, at least in this trial, whatever this is going on here, refuses to take that counsel. And he wants to take refuge in a sovereign God. And you'll see in the very first line, in the Lord Yahweh, I take refuge. Now, in the middle of a psalm, and probably at the most intense moment of the trial, David's fearful but probably well-meaning friends, I would imagine, ask this classic question. Look at this in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what, what possibly can the righteous do? What can they do? So many have had to answer this question down through time. The Bible records many of these men and women down through the years. Daniel and his three friends, how about those guys? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're now captive. Your nation has been disobedient to God. God sent Babylon in to take them captive. Captive. These three Jewish Hebrew men are now posed with a question, bow or die? <laughs> Doubtlessly, they had family. They had wives, possibly children. 
These are well-established men, leaders of of the Hebrew nation, and they are now questioned, what will you do? Will you bow or will you die? We know the story. They said, quite frankly, our God can deliver us. Remember this? But that isn't all what they said, right? Do you remember the next part? But if he chooses not... (laughs) We will not desert him. What a statement. You can think of others as you go down through Job and his wife walking out of Sodom and Gomorrah and Job's wife telling him, curse God and die. It's pretty foundational shaking when the person you love, who you've committed your life to, tells you just curse God and die. What are you going to do with that? Old Testament prophets. Not hard to study those guys. Men like Jeremiah who stood with no converts, no one believing him, telling men to repent, and yet there was complete refusal. In fact, not only a refusal, absolute abuse and attempted murder on his life time and time again. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Think about Jesus' disciples. Can you imagine those guys? They had put all their hope in Jesus Christ. They had fallen. They had left everything fishing, uh, law, uh, tax collecting, all those type of things. They've left it all to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he's dead. They watched him bury his lifeless body. You imagine their difficulties that they went through as they thought, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Can you imagine them saying, what can we do? (laughs) What can we, us 12, do? Now we're down to 11. What can we do? Think about the persecution of the early church. Nero is ravaging the Christians in Rome. He's dipped them in wax and wrapped them in netting and burns them in his gardens for lighting. The church is being dispersed. Letters are being written to the dispersion. People are chasing them down with great zeal to kill them. Maybe they said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Go all the way to the third century, difficult times laid upon the church. Long after Nero was gone, there was certainly persecution that came for centuries upon centuries until Constantine showed up. It isn't hard to move into the dark ages where the word of God is now hidden from the average man. You cannot get a copy of the scriptures. You cannot read it for yourself. In fact, if caught having the scriptures, you will die. The authority of the church has now way surpassed the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. And things are dark. When you study church history, there are times, hundreds of years in church history where you can't find the church, it seems. (laughs) But we know it's there. Maybe they said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It isn't hard to look at the reformers who finally said that the word of God should be in the hands of man and salvation comes through Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, through his word alone, for his glory alone. And they stood there and died for that. And not only just famous reformers that maybe we have in our hallway that we remember their stance for the Lord, but average men and women were slayed for the fact that they would not recant that Christ alone is salvation only through Maybe they said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The modern age hit in the early 1900s. 
This is the age when science became more important than the Bible. Maybe some of your parents or maybe some of our grandparents went through this. The Bible had been the stay. They believed in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And here comes the modern age. A total rejection of the scriptures. Well, that's a good fairy tale to have. That's a good story about Adam and Eve. But let me tell you how it really happened. And by the droves, the church turned away from literal biblical hermeneutic of interpreting the scripture to a scientific understanding of what happens in the world. Men and women watched their churches turn away from truth. And I'll tell you, you can read some of those people, and they thought that was the end of the age. And maybe they said, if the foundations are destroyed, if the church can't hold the biblical truth, what can the righteous do? But even beyond that, think now, when laws today are not upheld, when morality is undermined and evil rapidly grows unchecked, when the Bible is diluted and teaching is disre- biblical teaching is disregarded by those in the church, when it is difficult to find churchmen to stand for truth in the face of a rising tide of secularism, and biblical family values are crumbling and divorce is excused away, and increasing damage is done to children and as fathers and mothers pursue personal happiness at all costs, Maybe many say, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can we do when everything around us seems to be giving away? Well, the counsel here from whoever this is says, go hide, run. Run from what's happening. But David says, absolutely not. I will take my refuge in the Lord. That's what this message is about. Finding our refuge in the Lord. Most commentators I read try to pin this psalm in maybe two areas. First, they possibly think David is fleeing from King Saul. Second, they think David is maybe fleeing from his son Absalom. But does anyone see a problem with those suggestions? I read those and I thought, well, yeah, that could be true, but I saw a problem. In this text, he doesn't flee. In those, he does. Both texts, he flees to the mountains with Saul chasing him. I'm going to give you an illustration of that later in the message. When Absalom is chasing him, he crosses the river and flees into the wilderness, into the mountains. But in this one, he doesn't. And I think in, 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 in this case, it makes the psalm very practical for life. Because it's not held to a historical situation. We can apply this to many things in our own life. So as we look at this text this morning, I want to ask three questions and seek the answer from God's word. What will we do, number one, when the foundations of our lives are shaken? Many of you have gone through foundational shaking times in your life. Number two, who should we look to in our times of testing? Where shall, I are, where shall our eyes be turned to? Who will we look to? And then finally, where is our hope? Let's look at these three questions. Number one, what will we do when our foundations of our life are shaken? Look at verse one through three with me. David says this, In the Lord I take my refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountains? 
For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, as we said earlier, we're not sure of the situation David is in, but clearly he is receiving counsel to flee here. Maybe it would be something like this. Maybe they would say something like, David, your enemies, they're, they're lying in wait for you. And there's deadly arrows aimed at you. They have your name on them. You won't even see them coming. The best thing for you to do is run, man, run. Maybe that's what he's hearing. And there's nothing humanly good about this situation. Think about what is happening here. It seems uh, David does not have the high ground. And a military offensive high ground is extremely important. And David doesn't seem to have it because he's told to run to the higher ground. And it seems as we look at verse 2 that the safety is off. The shooter has tone, meaning the arrows are notched, the bow is bent, and they are ready to shoot. Furthermore, notice that the shooter has the elementary of surprise. He is in the darkness. He cannot be seen. This is equated to like night vision today. To make things worse, whoever is giving the counsel, they've lost their faith in Yahweh. <laughs> they, they don't have the ability at this point to keep the foundations together. They sense a sense of hopelessness. And they seem to be in full retreat mode as they ask David, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Verse 3 is an important verse. It is the central point of this. Notice it uses this word foundation. The Hebrew word is, a, is an interesting word. It's tied to a lot of other words where we get this foundational type of thinking. But it speaks of the seed of something. It actually um, can be translated uh, buttocks. <laughs> Are you more stable when you stand or when you sit down, right? <laughs> Often we'll sit someone down. You're more stable if we sit you down. I was also thought of the seat of where justice comes, right? This is the county seat, we call it, right? This is where justice is given. And so there's a strong term here, and, and God uses this term all through the Scriptures. Psalms 104, verse 5, He established the earth upon its foundations, right? He has control of it so that it will not totter forever and ever. This is what we believe, and this is what we come back to, brothers and sisters. When our foundations are shook, someone rejects you. You go through a difficult time in life. Where do you look? Where do you run to? What is your first mode? What do you turn to? Martin Luther, when he went through a great time of depression, really spiritual depression, he has the whole Roman Catholic Church after him. He's hiding out in an old abandoned fort where he, he writes some great hymns. But there was a time where he was very down. And you remember, I think I've probably told this story before. His wife Catherine looked at him one day as he sat depressed at the table and she said, apparently God is dead. <laughs> what a statement. Our wives do this to us, don't they? Apparently God's dead. That statement woke Luther. I mean, it grabbed him. And he said, wow, is that what I'm portraying? 
Is that the type of attitude I have in this difficult circumstance? That the sovereign God that I've preached and stood for and lost all for his sake is now dead? Is that what I look like? That's kind of a mirror, isn't it, right? We look into the word of God, the truth of who God is. We look into that mirror and we go, ugh. <laughs> There's times like that, right? We, we realize I am, I'm looking to my own way to secure my, my foundations. Or, or when things get un, unraveled, I, I'm trying to think of how I can somehow put that back together. And in the end, we dismiss the sovereignty of God. And we need to be snapped out of it. And we need to begin to have a resolve that the Bible teaches us what to do. It teaches us to run to a God who never forsakes nor leaves. And and brothers and sisters, you say, Scott, I know that truth, but why do I still struggle? Because we're human. And this is why we put ourselves under the word of God, both personally and corporately. This is why we remind ourselves of these truths because life is difficult and we are humans. We are but dust. And there's times we, we struggle and fear takes us and uncertainty grabs us. This is why we study, brothers and sisters. Because we need our chins, those spiritual chins, turned back to the one we are to take refuge in. And this text reminds us that. Verse 3 is such an intriguing question. And I wrote down a couple of thoughts. Why? First, because it's a question the righteous have asked many times when life seems hopeless. And I rehearsed some of those. Second, because, it's a good, because a good answer is hard to find when times are good, when the government is stable, when, when finances are good, when faith is strong. We don't seem to ask this question. But when things go difficult, when the tables are turned, This question must be asked. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David is is such a good lesson for us, isn't he? We see such astute faith in God at times, and then we see such recklessness in his life as well. I think that's why we love to uh, study him a little bit, because we see the greatness of God and his mercy on David. And though he makes tragic mistakes, God forgives him and he repents. He truly repents. Not just sorry he get caught, it's true repentance. We, we draw close to David because we think of that. But he had many situations in his life. Talk, talk about foundations being shaken. Remember in 1 Samuel 22, just listen, I'll tell you that. and Mark it down, go back and read this. Jonathan comes out and says, David, you're right, dad wants to kill you. You know, they're shooting the arrows far and short and doing all that. Remember that? Jonathan says, Dad's, Dad's off his rocker. He wants to take you out. You need to go, and you need to go now. And so David flees to Nob, and there he comes to the temple, and he finds Ahimelech. Ahimelech is the priest. And Ahimelech shows great kindness to David. David's trying not to get him engaged in this mess. Saul's acting like a wild man. He's trying to keep Ahimelech out of it and says, hey, I'm sent on a mission, but I, I had to leave quickly. Can you help me? And says, all I have is the, the old showbread that was used. I can give you that. And, and, and I still have Goliath's sword. I'll give you that. It belongs to you anyway, right? You can have that. And Ahimelech is just being kind to David and his men as he flees to the wilderness. Saul finds out that he got, went through Ahimelech's temple there and gathers those men up and brings them before them and 
and calls, uh, sands and call, calls him a treason. He calls him into treason. You've, you, you, you've turned against me. Here's the king, man. Nobody, nobody says no to the king. Ahimelech, although he begs to say he did not know what David was doing, Saul calls for his murder. And not only his murder, 85 priests. <laughs> the soldiers of the day right there would not do it. They, they were trained not to bring their sword against God's chosen, particularly these priests, and they wouldn't do it. And so Saul looks around the room and he finds a man named Daeg, which D-O-E-G, we just call him Dog. And Dog says, I'll do it. And so, uh, 1 Samuel 22 is sad. This man slaughters 85 innocent priests. I mean, think about that. Think about, it's just not 85 men. It's 85 wives and children and family members. Think about how what that was. Did you not think that maybe this verse in verse 3 maybe would come out, if the foundations are destroyed, our king has lost it, they're murdering priests, what can the righteous do? If that's not a place where you go, man, I don't know what we're going to do now, I think that would be one. And David. Can you imagine King David as he's in the wilderness and he hears what happened to Ahimelech, this friend, this confidant, this man who helped him, when he hears what happened, how he must have often said, oh Lord, what can the righteous do? You can hear that come out of them. Think of modern day situations. Your husband and four other missionaries fly into Ecuador. They drop leaflets trying to get to a tribe to share the gospel with them. And no sooner do they get out of the plane are they murdered, are they speared to death. Jim Elliott and his missionary friends and five widows now may say this verse in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You and your two buddies refuse to bow down to the sin of corporate world. You know if you don't bow down, it's financial suicide. But you also know what these men are asking you to do is contrary to what God has asked you to do. What do you do? Is your foundation shaken? What can the righteous do? Daniel had to make a decision, didn't he? New laws were written. Pray to anyone else than Darius? Go to the lion's den. I, I'm just, I mean, we read these stories. Do we believe them? The world doesn't believe these stories anymore. Liberal theologians don't believe that they're true. They're just accounts that are good to encourage you, like little Instagram snippets. I mean, Daniel had to make a choice. He had to say, God, if I continue to pray, I'm going to be torn to pieces by lions. Now, I don't know what that feels like, but I don't think it's probably something you really want done. And these men are waiting to catch him. He knows it's going to happen. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, what can the righteous do? Isn't that a good question? Who's asking it here? Whoever this is, is is telling us to David, what can the righteous do? It's this whoever this is, is does not see hope in God. 
So we must ask the question, what can the righteous do? Well, well first of all, I think we better figure out who the righteous are, <laughs> shouldn't we? Because I think most people, if you go and ask them in life, you go down the street, go, are you righteous? Yeah, dude, I'm righteous. <laughs> righteous, baby. But who are the righteous? Well, according to the Bible, there's none righteous. <laughs> no, not right. There's none righteous. In fact, you and I, who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are only righteous because we inherited it from God through the Son of God alone, not through any of our works of righteousness that we have done. But according to His mercy, He has saved us. So righteousness is justification. God declared us righteous through the work of His Son. So it's a limited group. It's a real limited group on the earth. Everybody else is pointing bows, locked on. They got tones. There's just a small group that this is talking about. Well, David says, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to be righteous. So what shall the righteous do? Be righteous. Isn't that a fair answer? What shall the righteous do? Be righteous, now think about this, be righteous by the grace of God. It's, it's, it, we're almost in a world right now in Christianity, if you say that you're pursuing righteousness, you're, you're labeled legalistic. And yet the Lord has deemed us righteous and, and calls us to righteousness. So, so what shall the righteous do? Well, they go on being righteous by the grace of God and by the strength of God supplies to them. They lean into the evil waves of society and they stand firm on the truth of God's word. That's what the righteous do. You'll be righteous. That's how David says, I'm going to take refuge in the Lord. I'm going to love the things the Lord loves. I'm going to hate the things the Lord hates. I'm going to stand with him. And though David repeats the counsel of the faithless here. He has no minds believing it. If there is running or fleeing to do, David says, I'm going to run and flee to the Lord. Look with me at Psalms 91. Another psalm we're not sure who wrote it. Sounds Davidic in some way. But look at the psalm with me. Another precious psalm many of us have leaned on through the years. This is what the righteous do. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. You're in the shadow. It means you're awful close. <laughs> you want to get under His wing where the shadow is. This is what the righteous do. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my Lord in whom I trust. That's what the righteous do. I trust in you, Lord. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinion. There comes that wing. And under his wing you will seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulkward. Wow. You will not be afraid of the terror by night, someone pulling an arrow back, or of the arrows that fly by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or the destruction that lays waste at noon. Not a very good scene. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right side, but it shall not approach you. You will only, you only look on with your eyes. 
and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord your refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. You know this verse is used of Jesus Christ. They will bear you up in their hands and you will not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down because he has loved me. Therefore, I will deliver him. And I will set him securely on high because he has known my name and he will call upon me and I will answer him and I will be with him in trouble and I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him. And let him see my salvation. Very messianic in a lot of ways. But yet, the Bible teaches us that we are in this family. The Lord is our elder brother. And so these things apply to us. And so what will the righteous do? They continue to pursue righteousness. And not only, thinking about that, just go a little far, go back to your New Testament, go to Ephesians chapter 6. Not only does the Lord become our refuge and our shelter. But Ephesians 6 says he arms us. I, the, the text in, in Psalm 11 is, has such military terms within it, like, I couldn't help but think of this text. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of your own might. His might. Put on the full armor of God. See, this is what the righteous do. You say, well, I just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit and cross my legs and hold my fingers like this and hum. No. You take refuge, you get up and run to the Lord, and there he gives you this armor. And so when the difficulties come, you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Notice verse 13: take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the e- Resist in the evil day. Stand firm, verse 14, girding your loins with truth. Wow, what an important thing. That's what we're doing this morning. We're girding our loins with truth. We're, we're strapping on that belt of truth. And we're putting on the breastplate of righteousness, reminding ourselves that it is Christ who declared us righteous. Every time you do that, you, you place that bless, breastplate on your Self. Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You, you protect your, your goings and comings with the truth of the gospel. That you have peace with God. You're no longer at war with God. Verse 16, in addition to all this, you take up the shield of faith. And so those arrows that you can't see, that come out of the darkness, that are full of fire and pitch coming at you, you are able to block those by faith in God. He equips you with all this. You have a helmet of salvation, a reminder of what God has done, a sword of spirit, which is the word of God in your hand, both for defense and offense. And you bathe all of this with prayer and petitions through the Spirit. See, not only, brothers and sisters, do we run to the refuge of of the Lord, but there He equips us to stand in difficult times. Or are you going to flee? It's a good question as we turn back to Psalms 11. Go to the mountains. 
Go somewhere where you can hide away from the things, the bad things that are going to happen. Is a question we must ask ourselves. David says, in the Lord I take my refuge. Second thought, who should we look to in our time of testing? Who should we look to? I want to answer the question of verse 3 here. What can the righteous do? Well, I want to answer to whom the righteous look to. Of course, David answered, I'm running to the Lord. I'm going to take refuge in him. And as believers, he is the only one to whom we can go when our foundations are shaken. And this is what David does. He reminds himself, great psalms like Psalms 8, just a page over. And he, he looks and says, wow, you hung the moon and the stars. You named them. You've done all this. The angels, oh, you made us a little lower than the angels, but you made us higher than the beast. He, he's, he's putting himself in right perspective. But, but then he just can't, he can't imagine, he can't get his mind around the majesty of God and all of that. See, that's what the righteous do. We look at ourselves as God looks at us. We accept those things. And David knew that the righteous must look to the Lord. Notice verse 4 in this section. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. So David's answer to the question, what will the righteous do? He says this, will we look to the holy temple? That's where the Lord is. He's on his heavenly throne. Think about that. The temple was built particularly in Solomon's day in all of its glory. And some people say, well, why did Solomon make such a massive temple? I mean, just an incredible, uh, spectacular, eye-catching temple. Well, it wasn't actually Solomon. Um, Solomon certainly built it, but David, God gave David the plans for that. You go, know, well, why was it so beautiful? Because what was happening was God was giving an earthly picture of what heaven looked like. It was granuous in that day. I mean, could you imagine seeing that temple? Just read in, in, the, in the great counts of the building of this thing, all the men that God gave the spirit of, of, of tradesmanship to so they could etch and carve and, and made this phenomenal, phenomenal temple. And the reason why, it was to remind them that God dwells. He dwells in a heavenly temple. And this one is an earthly one to, to help you know that God's holy and he's in his place. He's reigning and ruling. It was to resemble where God is. And so when David says, look to his holy temple, he's saying, look at God's perfect thoughts, his perfect position, his perfect intent. Look to his perfect word. It says the Lord's throne is in heaven. Boy, uh, it's so difficult. Our, our, and you know this, brothers and sisters. When we go through foundation-shaking times, our eyes come off of the Lord often and right onto our problems. And we go through this very difficult time, don't we? We go through this struggling like, oh God, where are you? And, and we wrestle with him, and, and yet our eyes are so captured by the situation. And David says, look to the Lord. He's in his throne in heaven. The throne of God is where the judge of all earth renders verdict. Righteous verdict, perfect verdict, just verdict. And David knew that man's judgments paled in comparison Here's this judgment, whoever this is giving. Oh, run away. He says, you know what? I'm going to look to the God who's in heaven, who's on his throne. I'm going to look to him because his verdicts are way better than yours. And there he finds comfort. Look at verse 5. 
The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Notice he observes all that people do, right? Does the world know that? Do they know God's watching them? Do we know it? (laughs) David said when he sinned his great sin, in Psalms 51 in his repentance, he said, in so many words, he says, God, you watched me do it. And you know what his sin was. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. God's constantly examining things, isn't he? And when David speaks of God's observation of a man, he's reminding himself of God's omniscience, right? He's saying, God sees everything. If I flee, he sees that. If I trust in him, he sees that there's nothing hidden from him. Though the wicked hide in the darkness, Psalms 139 verse 12 says, the the darkness is as what? Light to God. And so he sees all things. And all the deeds of the unforgiven are not only seen by God, but they will be perfectly judged according to Revelations chapter 20 verse 12. Notice at the end of verse 5. The one who loves violence, wickedness, sinfulness, his this is talking about God. God's soul hates. Someone the other day at a Q&A I was doing, I said, I was reminding them that we pursue the things God loves and, and we disdain, hate the things God hates. And hate's a strong word today, isn't it, right? I mean, that word brings up all kinds of problems, right? Hate crimes and all that stuff. Well, God does hate things, right? We know. The Bible says he hates sin, he hates divorce, he hates violence, he hates these things. This is what he hates. Do we hate those things? Do we love the things God loves? Notice in verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. Look at that phrase. Bahan is the, uh, the Hebrew word. It, it's an interesting word. It means to test, examine. really means to try, to try the heart. Uh, we get the word testing from it, meaning to test its strength. Maybe you've you know, made a metal plate and you're trying to test it to see if it will stand. That's what the Lord does. He tries and he tests both the righteous and the wicked. So God's examining the righteousness, right? He's examining our, our lives. He's also examining the wicked. And he pronounces a verdict. He pronounces a verdict. For those who are righteous, he will say, welcome in all of your sins were covered by my son. Come in and sup with me for eternal life. Boy, <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> if your sins are not forgiven, he will send you to go pay for those for eternity. He will cast a verdict. Because he has the ability to examine everyone. He knows whether you belong to him or not. Notice verse 6. Upon the wicked he will rain snares... Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Ah. I mean, think about that. He's preparing judgment for the wicked. They may be preparing to shoot their arrows at the righteous. They may be hiding in the dark shadows. But God is preparing to protect the righteous. And in the end, he will bring total destruction to those who are not righteous according to his son. It's very clear. 
Verse 6 is not just wishful thinking on David's part. Certainly David knew his, his Old Testament history. He knew Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> and maybe, I don't know, maybe he's even thinking about there. The Bible says that God rained down fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. When Abraham looked out to the east, it looked like a smoking oven, the Bible says. And David says, God, you're going to take care of this one day. I'm telling you, friends, we work so hard to try to get things to go our way instead of just running into his refuge. He is so good at what he does. Isn't he? he he's going to separate sheep and goats. He's just going to go, shh, shh, shh. no problem, looks right into the heart, has no issues, doesn't go, well, you're not going to have to think about this one. You're either branded with Christ or you're not. You're either righteous or not. He sees that. He knows that. And he'll separate sheep and goats. And he will rain judgment down upon those who have rejected him through, through not accepting his son. And he will open the doors of his paradise for those who have the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon them. And so remember, hell's called the lake of fire. And David understands that there's some kind of judgment coming to those who bend the bow at the righteous. Last thought. Where's our hope? And it brings us to this last verse. Where's our hope? I love the way the Psalms are written and so often. It starts with an encouraging word, works through real life situations, right? And then ends with this great statement, right? Look at verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will Behold his face. What can the righteous do? Well, I think David's saying one more thing here. David looked around at the wicked. He's looked at the holiness of God in his throne in heaven. And now he says, look ahead to the future. Notice the text in verse 7, that last phrase. But the upright, that's the righteous. That's those who have been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. The upright, what's, what's that little verb there? Will. <laughs> oh, we're talking about some future tense here. See what you're hoping today or, or what's coming. And, and this verse reminds us that the Lord is righteous and he has a, he has a standard that he's set and he's coming back. It, it points us to that he is concerned. He, un, he knows the destiny of the enemy. He's already said that in these previous verses. But he also knows your destiny. Isn't that cool? He didn't save you, call you to salvation from the foundations of the world and not know what you're going to go through in this life. He knows it. And, and yet he, he has ability to bring us into this and say, look, you who are righteous, who put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, you will see. Behold, it's a beautiful word, curtain pulled back, highlights. You will see my face. You'll see my face. This last verse reminds us that God is and what God, who God is and what he loves. It tells us he loves righteousness and he wants his children to be with us. He wants his children to be with him. Notice in the first part of verse 7, he says, The Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. Do you love righteousness? 
Man, it's a dangerous thing. I think loving righteousness according to God's standards is great, but loving righteousness according to your standards is very dangerous. That's where legalism comes from. We start running around pointing fingers at lots of people. Don't do this. Don't wear that. Don't eat this. We might making lists. And we, and we, oh, I love righteousness. Now you love your righteousness. Do you love what God loves? This is the doctrine of justification. We love that God declares us righteous. And then the result of that is the end of verse 7 that David longed to see the face of Christ and people who love the righteousness of Christ. Think about this and as we close this thought out and move to communion. Those who love righteousness love the God of righteousness. Right? You just don't love righteousness for righteousness sake like I know it's right, it's my standard. No, we love what God's standard is. What's God's standard for marriage? What's God's standard for parenting? What's God's standard for finances? What's God's standard for us in this life on this world? Do you know that? Do you know your Bible? And, 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 and we have to think about this. Do I pursue righteousness for his glory or mine? Hmm. Do I pursue righteousness for his glory or mine? But he says, the upright will behold my face. Every believer longs for the end of seven. Whether you're Old Testament or New Testament. Moses, when he was frustrated with the people, Exodus chapter 33, he says, I just need to see your face. And God said, you can't see my face and live. Well, Why? Because he's dealing with the foundations of the world being shook. And he comes down with his great time with the Lord, 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai. He comes down with these great tablets to tell the people, and what are they doing? Worshiping a bull calf out of Egypt. Here's your God. It just formed out of the fire. Moses comes back up and says, I got to see you. Everyone wants to see the face of God if you know who he is. And I love this text because it closes with this. The upright will behold your face. Hmm. Friend, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you're going to see the judge, not God. If you're here today and by God's grace alone, through faith alone, through his word alone, for his glory alone, if that's why you're saved, if God has taken you and you know he did the work, you will see his face. So what will the righteous do? They'll keep running. They'll run right into the refuge and trust God at times when their foundation is shaken. And, and friend, I don't know when that's going to be, but you could go home today and get a car wreck. Moms and dads, we know the fear of that phone ringing sometimes. We know our sons and daughters are on the road or they're doing something and, and, or, or they're at school or something's going on and the phone rings. Some of you have had that phone call, haven't you? Your foundation is shooken. What will the righteous do? See, this is a great, this is a great reminder. Put your faith in Christ alone. Father, We thank you for these psalms, Lord. They're written a thousand years ago. And yet, life is very similar. The wicked want to prosper. They don't want the righteous in their way. We don't want our lives inconvenient by pregnancies. 
We want to love whoever we want to love. We don't care of God's standard. We reject your way to heaven. If there is a heaven, how can it just come to Christ alone? Can't we just be good Americans, good citizens? Lord, the enemy is strong. They seem to have all the weapons. They seem to have all the control. They seem to hold the purse strings. And yet you tell us to run to you in the refuge. So Lord, I pray for myself, all my brothers and sisters sitting here, Lord. That Lord, as our foundations get shaken from time to time, these things that we think are okay and our finances, our family, our health, all those things, Lord, they will be shaken from time to time. What will we do? What can the righteous do? We can run to you. We can put our refuge in you. We can look to you. We can see you in your heavenly throne through the scriptures. We can realize that you are the God of justice. You are the God of righteousness. You will set the record straight. And we can put our hope that someday we will come into your presence and see your face. Oh, Lord. What a blessing. And so, Lord, I pray for many right now in this room. Their foundations have been shaken. There's others watching from home or hospitals. Their foundation has been shaken. And Lord, they maybe have asked the question, Oh Lord, what can I do? Cause us, remind us that we can always run to you. That we can take refuge under the shadow of your wing. You love your children. And you will protect us. And one day we will see your face and all will be made right as we sang this morning. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.